Uh, let's open to First John 4. First John 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the theme of chapter 4 of 1 John is the love of God. And it is the love of God being demonstrated in and through believers in our relationship to one another. It is a supernaturally produced love. This love, which we are called to live out toward one another, is rooted in the love of God. It's rooted in God's love toward us. And the chief demonstration of that love being that God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world, uh, that he might save us. Look back at chapter 3 in verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. This is what I call the other John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So clearly, verse 16 tells us that the love of God has been shown to us in this way, <clears throat> that he laid down his life for us. But then the apostle does something interesting in verse 24, and that is he connects the love of God to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So the way that we know the love of God is through the work of the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit then, who comes to live within believers, is the empowerment that you and I need in order to love one another the way that God has loved us. And so this Holy Spirit who indwells us is the same Holy Spirit who demonstrates himself over and over throughout the scriptures before Christ arrived, but especially after the Lord Jesus ascended to heaven. And he promised that he would send his spirit. 
In fact, as we are thinking about the incarnation this month, and that is another theme of 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 John 4, which is why we're staying here this year rather than going off into a separate Christmas series. John is talking about the importance, the essential doctrine of God becoming man, the Son of God taking upon himself human flesh. And that was also a work of the Holy Spirit. So let me just remind you of something that sometimes we miss during this season of the year. Turn back to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1. Rightly so, we draw much attention to the Lord Jesus. We draw much attention to his birth, to the incarnation of the Son of God, that is, the Son of God becoming man. But one of the doctrines we don't think as often about is the Holy Spirit, his role in particular in the life of Christ and now in our lives. In Luke chapter 1, notice in verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. So clearly it was the Holy Spirit who performed this miracle of a conception in the womb of the virgin, thus bringing about this incarnation of the sinless Son of God into the world, taking on human flesh and remaining sinless. Now this miracle was so unbelievable to the human ear. It was so one of a kind that you may remember that Joseph, the fiancé of Mary, really struggled to believe that this was possible. How is this possible, that my fiancé has not been unfaithful to me? And so God records in his word that he sent an angel to Joseph and relieved his fears. And again, notice the emphasis that God places upon the Holy Spirit. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, it says in Matthew, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is 
from the Holy Spirit. So again, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, the third person in the Trinity, along with the Father and the Son, is the one who performed this miracle. This miracle of the virgin conception of the Son of God. And he can do this miracle because he is God. The Holy Spirit is fully God, sent forth from the Father, sent forth from the Son as the one who would carry out the plan, the implementation, the application of the truth of the gospel. In fact, Genesis 1 tells us that uh, all three members of the Trinity were involved in the creation of the universe. It says that the Holy Spirit was hovering over over the surface of the waters. The Holy Spirit who created the human baby, Jesus, is the same Holy Spirit that created the universe. Not a tough miracle for the Holy Spirit to perform. Baffling to us. Seemingly unbelievable. And yet it's exactly what the Scriptures teach us. There is nothing the Holy Spirit cannot do that is within the will of God. And this same Holy Spirit who impregnated Mary, who created the universe, who performed countless other powerful works testified in Scripture, is also the same Holy Spirit who gives to us new life spiritually. He is the one who causes us to be reborn, to be born from above, to be born of God, to be born of the Holy Spirit himself. And that is one of John's main points here in chapter 4, which brings us then to this morning's big idea, and that is this. True Christians are born again by the Spirit of God who now indwells us and protects us from error. You and I need to understand, we ought to never forget, that if we are sitting here this morning and we know Jesus in a saving way, that he has begun a good work in us through the gospel, that that is not something that we take credit for. It is the Holy Spirit who breathed divine life into spiritually dead corpses, causing us to be made alive together with God in Christ. This is what it means to be regenerated, to be born from above, to be born again. So the Holy Spirit is responsible for employing the Word of God to bring spiritual life to our dead works. For example, in the spring of 1984, those early months of 1984, as I was being exposed to the gospel for the very first time, the saving gospel, the clear, unadulterated, free from all the religious uh, trimmings, that gospel... God used the Word of God as I was in this home Bible study in the Gospel of John. The Holy Spirit is the one who began to open my eyes and help me to see what was actually going on, who I was as God saw me, not who I was as I saw myself. 
and then showed me that Christ is what I needed. He's the one who I needed. And the Holy Spirit is the one then who gave birth to me spiritually, transferring me from religion to a relationship with Christ. Jesus says it this way in John 3. Jesus answered him, that is Nicodemus, the religious man, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who causes us to be born again as we hear the gospel, as we are exposed to the word of God, as we hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of it this way in Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Clearly then, the scriptures teach us that you and I can never be saved by works of righteousness which we have done, but only according to the mercy of God. And we experience that mercy of God in a saving way when the Holy Spirit causes us to be reborn. Not causes us to become religious. Anyone can become religious. But causes us to become reborn. Spiritually alive unto God for the very first time. So true believers are born again by the Spirit of God, who now indwells us. But John says this same Spirit also protects us from error. Look at verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. You have overcome these false teachers that John was writing to these believers to protect them from. Why? Because you are from God. That is, you have been born of God. So a true Christian is not a religious person who has simply decided to subscribe to an outline of doctrine or a new set of moral standards. Anyone can do that in the power of the flesh. But a Christian is one who finds their empowerment divinely given within by the Holy Spirit of God. A true Christian is spiritually alive, born again by the power of the Spirit. This morning then, in the scriptures that we're going to look at, God wants you to understand and heed two admonitions. 
Number one, realize that the Holy Spirit who is in you is more powerful than Satan who empowers the world. Notice verse 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is the Spirit of God that he has been talking about in verse 24 of chapter 3 and in verse 2 of chapter 4. The one who is in you as a believer is greater, more powerful than Satan. That's really important for us to remember. So the Holy Spirit empowers us to overcome the world in the sense that we understand the truth of God found in Scripture. It also means, then, that we have divine power to defeat remaining sin in our hearts so that we live righteously and godly in this present age. God did not save us and then say, okay, now go and do your best for the rest of your life. He didn't do that. He saved us by his grace through the gospel and then gave us the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to empower us, to then live a whole new way, a whole new life. That's not driven by the flesh keeping the law, but it's driven by the Holy Spirit seeing the very life of God working out from us. This is the new life of the gospel. This is what it means to be born of God. But there's also a day coming when we will overcome the world permanently. That day when we see Jesus, either on the day of our death or on the day when he returns. Therefore, the presence of the Holy Spirit not only distinguishes us from unbelievers in the world, but it redirects our hope to the future, the world that is to come. In his book, God's Big Picture, Vaughn Roberts says it this way, thinking about the future and what the Holy Spirit has secured for us. He says, Christians will decay and die along with everyone else. Our faith in Christ does not grant us immunity from wrinkles, gray hairs, broken legs, or cancer. And the world we live in is still not redeemed. We shall continue to struggle against sin and to face opposition for our faith. The Christian life is hard work. It is a fight and a race. Do not be surprised then if you find it a struggle to live for Christ. That is the normal Christian life in this present world. The presence of the Spirit helps, but it also contributes to the sense of frustration that we feel. Then he illustrates. Have you ever been in the kitchen when someone is baking some delicious food? The cook lets you have a taste before giving you strict instructions not to touch any more until it is served on the table later. The anticipation is almost unbearable. It would have been easier if you had not been allowed that taste. 
But now that you know how delicious it is, you find it very hard to wait for another mouthful. Those two hours before the meal seem like an eternity. It is similar for us in the Christian life. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, a taste of the blessings of heaven. We know something of what it's like to be holy, and we long for more. And we know something of what it means to know God through Christ and and to be loved by him, and we cannot wait to feel it more. That is why we groan inwardly. It expresses our frustration with the sin that is so prevalent in our lives and in the world and signals our desire for more of the wonders of the world to come. The longing that you and I feel in our hearts for the world to come is something produced by the Holy Spirit. It's not something we conjure up in our own power. As we wait eagerly, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. John is saying to us, you need to realize something. As you struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, as you struggle to discern between truth and error, as you struggle and fight for growing obedience in your life and in your heart, you must realize that if you are spiritually alive in Christ, then the Holy Spirit is alive in you. And you are not on your own to fight these battles. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, John says. Satan is no match for the Holy Spirit. The sin that you battle is no match for the Holy Spirit. The world and all of its temptations is no match for the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. That's what John is saying. And if you remain in the word, which we've been hearing about over and over in this letter, then the Spirit of God will use Scripture to protect you from theological errors that have the potential to lead you astray. In his first letter, To Timothy, the Apostle Paul warns him to stick faithfully to Scripture because others, he says, have made shipwreck of their faith by following the teachings of men. Then he goes on to name two of them who have been handed over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme God. The Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, will protect us from errors that Satan wants to use to lead us astray. The Holy Spirit in you, John is saying, is more powerful than Satan who empowers the world, and he will protect you from these spiritual errors as you humbly submit to Scripture. Our primary instrument of defense in these attacks is 
the Bible. Ephesians 6 says it this way, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You want to do battle against error? Then pick up the word of God. You want to do battle against the sin that you are seeking to be conquered and delivered from? Then shoot it down with the sword of the Spirit. Put a knife in its heart with God's word which is the sword of the Spirit. In other words, if you want to experience this Holy Spirit power in your life, then you've got to get into the Bible. You've got to be meditating on the Bible. You've got to be applying it to your life. You have to get to the point where you are seeking for it to be the functional authority of your life. Not your fickle emotions but the stability of this truth. The Holy Spirit uses God's word to bring us to faith and godliness. If you want to stay on track, if you want to stay in the path of experiencing God's blessings for yourself and for your family, then you need to stick to the word of God. That's what promise we have in his word. There's a second admonition that we see here, and that is this. Recognize that unbelievers follow the world because they do not have the Holy Spirit. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I think sometimes we expect too much from unbelievers. I hear the comments of Christians sometimes, and, and it's as if they expect... I'll say we, because I think we're all guilty at times. We expect non-Christians to act like Christians. When God's word says, without the Holy Spirit, they're just going to do what they do. Just like we did what we did before we were saved. Before the Lord awakened our hearts. They're from the world, verse 5 says. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. So these false teachers, these false Christians who had infiltrated into this congregation that John is writing to, they were drawn to worldly messages rather than the word of God because they did not have the Holy Spirit within them. And so without the spirit of truth within them, there was nothing holding them back from just gravitating toward the messages of the world. Without the Holy Spirit, unbelievers do not have the ability or even the desire to discern truth from errors. And what we've been hearing from John over and over here is that fake Christians say that they want to follow God. But when the tough times come, they don't run to God for the answers. They don't run to godly people for counsel in their life. Instead, they run to the world because that's the message they naturally want to listen to because they don't have the Spirit of God within them. 
And so they're going to go to where they think the answers are. But we know from Scripture the answers aren't there. The answers aren't in the world. The Old Testament prophets saw that same thing in his day. And he, he, as God's mouthpiece, he said, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, or as they turned away from me, the source of all true life, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I've seen this too many times over the years. Professing Christians who claim they want God's blessing, but they do not seek counsel from people who are going to take them back to the word of God. They just follow the world. They listen to the world, the world listens to them. And by running to the world, they're, they're in a sense putting a band-aid and neosporin on a broken leg and expecting it to work. If you want to see the Holy Spirit mightily work in your life and in the hearts of the people that you love, then you must first submit to God's message, to the functional authority of his word. Not the message of the world. William MacDonald writes in, in his commentary, the approval of the world is not a test as to truthfulness of one's teachings. In other words, some people say, well, it's really popular, so it must be right. Really? I don't find that in Scripture. He says, the approval of the world is not a test as to the truthfulness of one's teachings. If a man simply wants to be popular, all he needs to do is speak as the world speaks. But if he is to be faithful to God, then he must face the disapproval of the world. Can I just be very frank with you? One of the reasons we don't stand up for the word of God and have it be the functional authority of our lives is we fear man more than we fear God. We fear the disapproval of people in our lives more than we fear the disapproval of God. And we need help. We need help from the Holy Spirit, and we should be praying. Holy Spirit, help me to be more rested and content in the approval that I have from God because of Christ rather than being always afraid of doing this or that because I might offend somebody who disagrees with me or disagrees with God. Jesus said, if we're faithful to him, there are going to be times in which we will be met with the disapproval of people in this world. And if you can't hack it, then you have not counted the cost of what it means to follow Christ. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We're not on our own. The Holy Spirit will give us the strength and the courage to follow the Lord faithfully 
according to his word. We are from God, verse 6. In other words, we have been born of God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Now remember the context here. John is saying, whoever knows God is going to listen to the apostolic teachings. But these false teachers, they didn't want to listen to the apostles. They wanted to invent new doctrines for themselves. Then he says, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. See, following the word of God is the clearest evidence that the Holy Spirit lives within us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us, John says. These false teachers refused to submit to the apostolic doctrines of the New Testament. And so they led many astray. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. By what? By what, John? By a person's response to the authoritative message of Scripture. Look back at chapter 2, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. God blesses humble obedience to his word. And he actually equates it with obedience to himself. Listen to the testimonies of both Jesus and the apostles. Jesus says, Whoever does the Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And then John 8 says, Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You want to know the truth? And you want to walk in the freedom of Christ? Then continue in his word. John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John 18, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And how many times have we seen this same principle in 1 John so far? We know that we know him if we keep his commandments. We don't know that we know him because we know the right things to say. We know that we know him by the fruit of the Holy Spirit making itself evident in our lives. Consistent obedience to God's word rather than following the messages of the world or following our unreliable emotions, that is the testimony of true 
faith. John is saying to us here that if we have the Holy Spirit living within us, who is greater than Satan, who empowers the world, then there will be a growing submissiveness of heart in us toward the authority of Scripture and what it says for our lives. It's the only way to experience joy. To quote a man in my former church, no one, no one is more frustrated than he or she who tries to live the Christian life without being a Christian. But if we know the Lord, then this promise is ours. That we have the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, living within us, the Spirit of Christ living within us to empower us, to protect us from false doctrine and all the weird messages of the world, to keep us true to his word and to empower a growing obedience in our lives. That is true. That is a promise for everyone who has been born of the Spirit. So when we come to Christ, when we realize that we are sinners who cannot save ourselves, no matter how many works of righteousness we attempt to do, we come to Jesus in repentant faith and we turn away from trust in ourselves and we turn to trust in Jesus, we then receive the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit takes up his residence within us in order to empower us to walk in humility and obedience. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. What a great promise to hold on to. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Lord, there are days that we go through as believers where we just are frustrated with the lack of progress that we see in our own lives. Yes, we see that you are changing us and you have changed us and yet we long for so much more. The Spirit of God is that down payment that the first fruits of redemption who now lives within us, who causes us to long for the future, to long for the life to come. We now live in this present age, but oh, how we long for the age to come. And Lord, thank you for these reassuring truths that you've given to us this morning. And Lord, I just pray if, if there's anyone here this morning who is not truly born again by the Spirit of God, that he would take the beauty of the gospel and just bring it home to hearts of men and women and children, that he would breathe new life into dead hearts and begin a good work, the work of redemption. And Lord, thank you for the promise that because of the Holy Spirit living within us as believers, that the promise of your word, that the one who began a good work in us will complete it, is our promise 
And we can cling to that. So, Father, thank you so much for this supernatural work that you are doing in us through the gospel, through the word of God as the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts and our minds and our wills. Cause us, Lord, to walk in increasing humility and obedience to the functional authority of Scripture in our lives, we pray for the glory of Christ. Amen.